Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Teaching Notes, the podcast of the Music Teachers Association with me, Patrick Johns. And for the last two weeks, the music education world has been talking about nothing else except the National Plan for Music Education, Mark II, which is, and I quote, a vision for music education and how this can be achieved through partnerships with schools, music hubs, the music and creative sector and others. It was released on Saturday the 25th of June and many people were very quick to read the whole 80-page document and to begin sharing their thoughts on its content and implications. This whole episode will be given over to the National Plan and therefore I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast two of the expert panel who helped shape the plan itself. There's the Chief Executive of UK Music, Jamie Njoku Goodwin, and the MTA's own Catherine Barker, who is also the Head of Music and Performing Arts for United Learning. Catherine, welcome to Teaching Notes. Hi, Patrick. Great to be here. And Jamie, welcome to you too. Hello. Lovely to be here. Obviously, we're here today to talk about the National Plan for Music Education, Mark II. Catherine, could you just give us the background? Yes. So music as a subject is the only subject that has a strategic plan uh, in place. So in 2011, the original version of this plan was put together with a group of really reflective colleagues It was originally actually came from Arts Council, kind of deep dive into what was going on in music education, a wider ecosystem. And from that, essentially, the biggest shift that happened in 2011 was the creation of the music hubs. So I think there was a feeling that when it was being refreshed, which was always the plan, 10 years later for this to happen, that it was sort of build on what happened in 2011 but not necessarily take a new direction. It's just a sort of ongoing look at what was happening and add in content and address things as needed. Interestingly, I think a lot of people's reflections were that it didn't gain enough traction in 2011. And we wanted to make sure that it was really well understood at this point in the refreshed version, but also reflecting all the changes that have really happened in the education sector since 2011. So, for example, the Academy's programme has dramatically changed what schools are like. Not only that, but we know that there's been changes as well in terms of structures around qualifications, for example, the introduction of the EBAC, all sorts of different things have happened. So the landscape has changed that required to look again to see if the strategy was right. I'd echo things Catherine has just said there. It's been fascinating going back over the National Plan for Music Education, which came out actually when I was at university and it wasn't something I really particularly engaged with then. But looking back at it now, it's fascinating just quite how far the landscape has shifted and seeing references to things sort of like not really recognising the role that technology can play, just the general schools landscape and the general policy landscape. And just actually the language that people talk about music education in, actually, there's a sense that things really have shifted. So it's absolutely been needed. But also in terms of how people have been incredibly worried about what's happening with music education more broadly and the need to make sure that we could be having music at the heart of education and then making sure that with sort of declining rates of people people doing GCSE, doing A-level music, there almost being a sense that we needed a track change and we needed something that's going to really be boosting music education and ensuring that you can be seeing people across the country having access to that high quality music education. So I think that was sort of the, very much the framing for the need for the plan and the need to really come together behind music education, but identify what do we need to be doing for a policy level to ensure that music education is, um, is at the heart of education. Great. Thank you. Now, because I've only got the two of you for a short time and because there are also lots of webinars and interviews being done about the National Plan, not least the MTA's own two, I'm just going to dip in and out and find out a bit more that way, if that's okay. So a quote 
from the national plan. Schools should deliver high quality curriculum music for at least one hour a week in key stages one to three, supported by co-curricular learning and musical experiences. That's already the case, isn't it? That schools should be delivering an hour a week in key stages one to three. And if that isn't happening, for example, if music's on the carousel, it's not because the head teacher doesn't see music as being important enough to warrant an hour a week. So why will this change anything? Fascinating looking at the patches of provision sometimes, which actually this was exactly the case in 2011. One of the things that the National Plan for Music Education in 2011 wanted to address was a sense that there were some schools doing music education fantastically and others doing it not so well. What could we be doing to be driving up standards across the board, but making sure that there's not this patchiness of provision? One of the challenges about music education is that Every school you go into, every music teacher I know, many of my friends are music teachers, they're so devoted, they're passionate, they're dedicated. And often problems with music education aren't actually sort of at the music teacher level. It's often at senior leadership. It's wanting to make sure that the governors, the head teachers are actually really buying into music education and are recognising it's, it's important. And so while there are those sort of like that guidance already there, what hasn't really been driven is being at senior leadership level, recognising the importance of music, recognising the importance of music education. So the idea of sort of, again, that's in the plan, making sure that music is represented in every school's leadership structure, that's incredibly important. There is going to be that voice for music education at senior levels in schools, making sure that every school is having some sort of music development plan, putting pressure on senior leadership teams in schools to be considering what they need to be doing on music education, because otherwise it just ends up being left as sort of a, a luxury item. I mean, we've actually seen it in even as a governmental level. I know one of the things that really upset people a few months ago, rightly, was when there were the proposals for music education to sort of be suspended to try and focus on more important subjects. And again, that attitude sort of goes through many schools, it goes through many sort of senior leadership teams and trying to make sure that you can ensure that every school, every senior leadership team is going to have to engage with music education, is going to have to recognise that they need to be boosting and focusing and prioritising on music education. Hopefully that should be making sure that the sorts of things that you do see in some fantastic schools that deliver a really high quality music education across the country that can be seen in far more schools and far more areas but it's non-compulsory isn't it i mean slts and heads are not going to be obliged to do this this is a recommendation albeit a very kind of strong recommendation but if a head chooses not to that's going to be okay so to speak so you're always getting to this challenge, and particularly in the education space. I should say, I come at this from the industry perspective rather than the education sort of policy specifically um, space in terms of my background. But I know you're always getting to this problem in education, where it's sort of what can you have as guidance? What can you have as kind of compulsory? What can you really sort of make mandatory for schools to be doing? And particularly in terms of the structures that many schools work along, it is sometimes quite hard to actually really mandate these sorts of things. But I think sort of having a really clear, really strong steer from the centre of government that this is the sort of thing that teachers should be engaging with, that head teachers should be doing. Actually, in my experience, head teachers don't not prioritise music education because they passionately believe that music education is pointless. It's something that they just haven't really been pushed to do and the government hasn't really said to them before, this is something that you should be doing. Now, regardless of that's guidance or if that's an actual obligation, the hope is going to be that this is basically going to be pushing those senior leadership teams to be engaged with music education much more sincerely and much more credibly than some of them do in the past. And I should say there are so many teams across the country that do do this really well. It's not the case that it's sort of awful across the whole country. It's trying to make sure that the schools that do provide that fantastic musical education and that are showing that leadership from their senior management teams, that's being reflected across the system as a whole. I'd add to that that I think whilst the statement at the top about 
curriculum music and co-curricular music is useful as an overall umbrella where people should really be looking at other seven key features, which isn't just about curriculum music, but it's about the full offer that wraps around a music department. It's not just about co-curriculum curriculum. It's also about space. It's all about facilitating performances. It's about live musicians and that partnership with the community, with parents, everything coming together around the musical child so that when senior leaders go, well, we really want this how can we do it that can be used as a guidance as a, as a benchmarking for people to understand how to make great provision because if you've not seen a great music department it's difficult sometimes to work out how on earth what are the ingredients and also it's an opportunity for those schools that jamie's just referenced those really great schools to go yeah we're doing this well done us because we have to say well done and thank you to all those schools who are so brilliant and doing a fantastic job And that leads me nicely on to the music development plan that every school is going to have to produce, which, and I quote, should set out how the school will deliver high quality music provision for all pupils in the three areas of curriculum, co-curricular and enrichment, and so on and so on, including timetable curriculum music at least an hour a week. We've talked about that. Access to lessons across a range of instruments, developing a school choir and or vocal ensemble developing a school ensemble band or group providing space for rehearsals and individual practice termly performances and live performances once a year any school that can already be doing this already is doing this surely where are these new rehearsal rooms going to come from because heads aren't just going to cancel science club or drama club or extra maths club to make way for music are they imagine if it was the other way around you have to cancel your wind band rehearsal because the government says we need more maths I don't think it's always as clear cut as that. I think what it is, is underlining the necessity. If if you want to really make this subject work, it needs to have the space and time which is required. Just like for PE needs to have large spaces in order to be able to do activity and matches so that if you've got the exam hall taken out for a large swathe of time each year while kids are doing mocks, that's going to have an impact on their curriculum as well. So it's making that point clearly understood. Often... I noticed that practice rooms make really nice little offices. And just reminding people, when you make these decisions, it's going to have an impact. And uh, the subject, especially, I think there was a real case for social it's a social justice case for me that when we have a lot of young people who are not able to have space at home to practice because of the you know of their housing and especially if you're in the inner cities if you're in a you know two bedroom one even one bedroom property how on earth can you practice your instrument if you haven't got space you have to be able to do it at school so we have to really remind all teachers of context that is what it's about it's a social justice issue I would never frame this as this is some stuff that the government just sort of wants schools to do. And it's sort of just a push from government. Actually, when it comes to music education, I always think we actually often completely underestimate quite how important this is for parents. So UK Music, we did some polling last year, some public polling representative across the country. It found that 54 percent of parents take the quality of music education as kind of one of the serious factors that they think about when choosing where to send their child to school. So this isn't one. This isn't sort of something that's it's just sort of this nice to have. Actually, this should be critically important for schools when they're looking at how to make themselves most attractive schools. When they're looking at trying to work out what should be good for children, what should be what a parent's going to be wanting, what a children's going to be wanting. Actually, so this is absolutely mission critical, and it shouldn't be seen as a burden on them. This is a plan to make sure that they can be delivering high quality music education for every child. It's in the interest of schools to be doing that. It's in the interest of leadership teams to be doing that. And actually, this is a blueprint that 
hopefully schools will look at and welcome because we are setting out their sort of way in this document of how they can be providing that high quality music education that they should want to be delivering in the first place. Okay, now tell me about the National Hub Centres of Excellence and the competition. So there's not much information yet about this. That's still to be finalised, is my understanding of this. But based on the information that I've heard so far, uh, it's going to be a really great opportunity for hubs who have particular areas of expertise to be able to share that more widely across the country. And it may be that they might even be in consortium with another hub who are also doing that. So it's not even individual hubs. There's opportunities for people to work in partnership, which after all is at the heart of the plan, people collaborating and working together. So we already know that, you know, there's some great practice around technology and inclusion, all sorts of different work going on across the country. And what's really important is that it can be shared so that people aren't reinventing the wheel from region to region. So I think it's going to be a really exciting way of getting that national collaboration, which is going to have really high impact. Catherine just keeps saying everything much more articulately and accurately than me. But, um, so I think one of the things that is most exciting about the hubs and the way we really want to be going with them is essentially being able to promote and be a framework for this partnership we really need and want to be seeing across the sector. So a lot of the point about this plan, there's so much work that goes on in school, but actually music education, it's not something that should just be happening in school hours. Actually, what could we be doing to be promoting sort of music education across a whole range of organisations? Like what can the music industry be doing? What can local professional organisations be doing? What can amateur organisations be doing? I think it's something that I've been really passionate about. There are some fantastic organisations in the leisure sector and the amateur music sector who do phenomenal work, who I sort of go to concerts are completely inspired by. It. And I can take friends that my local orchestra and then I get they have their mind blown by it. And sometimes you think, actually, what could we be doing to be making sure that more children can be having these sorts of opportunities? And I mean, there's a really fantastic culture of high quality music making in the whole amateur space in the UK that I often think we don't really make, make enough of. So what could we be doing to sort of be engaging these organisations, really promoting these partnerships and ensuring that music education, yes, it's something that primarily happens in school, but it shouldn't just be seen as something that happens in school. We don't worry about at the end of the school day. It needs to be sort of this wraparound 24-7 um, approach that we can really be driving forward. Is it a good thing that there will be a reduced number of hub lead organisations establishing partnerships across wider geographical areas. Why is a reduced number a good thing? We've seen in some regions that this model has been really impactful. So, for example, where you look at the greater Manchester area and the way that Bolton Music Service is able to collaborate with the other services around Manchester, which avoids duplication of work. They can do more, better at scale. It is that local collaboration that is really is essentially benefiting young people. It's not about saving money. It's not about doing different things. It's about working out what's best for the children and young people. Now, of course, this is going to be a challenge, I imagine, in different areas, because where you have a large rural area, it's going to be much more difficult to do something like that. But we know that there are models where it works. It's not just Manchester, but there's also Triborough. And I think that's what they want to tap into. But I don't work in hubs, so it's not something that I can elaborate on. Yeah, similar. I'd sort of just echo that and say this shouldn't just be about numbers. The whole point of this is how are you going to have the most reach? How are you going to have the biggest impact? And basically, how are you going to be most effective? 
And if you get to a situation where sort of larger but more focused organisations can be basically having that reach, can be being more strategic rather than having lots and lots and lots and lots of organisations which sort of like often bump up against each other and can't really be as strategic as possible, then again, that sort of makes sense. But the whole focus on the on that reduced line, there's a danger of there being a bit of a red hair in there because it's not like say this isn't about saving money, this isn't about reducing access to services, this isn't about this is mainly just about me making sure that the hubs themselves and actually these partnerships we want to be, be driving are as effective as possible. And if they're gonna be more effective as having sort of larger but smaller numbers, then I think that's a good thing. And sticking with hubs, from late 2024, they're gonna to have to appoint a voluntary music ambassador. It suggests a professional musician who can kind of you know support and so on. Firstly, can you tell me about that? And secondly, why is it voluntary? Why is the national plan asking a professional musician to work for free? What message does that give out to students and parents about music being a viable career when we're asking people to work for free? Firstly, I'd say there are people across the music industry who give so much of their time to this sort of already. There are lots of people working in all sorts of sets, all sorts of roles who basically believe in the value of music education, see this as something that is fundamentally important and already are ambassadors for music education. They advocate for it. They champion it. They give lots of their time for this already. I mean, where this comes from is essentially having that sort of person. This is not sort of a full-time role where someone is basically going to be doing a full-time operational role. It's who are those role models? Who are those people who could be championing music education and making sure that locally they could be providing that sort of inspiration for young people and um, for schools and being that role model for young people? Um, so I think, again, you, you see you see a lot of this in sort of other sectors. Um, you see a lot of this kind of across the education space. Um, and it will obviously be for hubs to take forward um, how they appoint and how they actually choose and what these uh, what the roles will actually look like. And I'm, I assume we'll, it'll, they'll look quite different across various different hubs. This isn't sort of saying we don't want to be taking people and just getting loads of free work for them. I, in the music industry, we often have people coming to me saying, I want to be doing more in education. What more can I be doing? So I think there'll be people across the sector who will be wanting to do things like this. And I would add to that, that if people are interested in making an impact to not wait for that moment and for those roles to pop up. So there is always a need for people to get involved in governance of music hubs. Sometimes it's more maybe an advisory board if it's a hub that's connected to a local authority. But there are quite a few hubs who are charities in their own right. And they require people with expertise from the sector, whether it's musical expertise or whether people who are experts in finance, in HR, who are working in the sector to get involved, especially I think the role of parents who have that expertise and interest. This is a real way that they can add value and get involved and help to make a difference. Yeah, not to go back on it, but I just sort of say like there are one of the things that the whole music sector really benefits from are the huge expertise and experience you have on boards, for example. It's sort of it's completely normal for people to be giving up their time and giving up their experience and expertise on boards or school governors. And actually, that can have a hugely positive benefit for lots of organisations. And I'd like to think that this would be something that would actually be hugely beneficial for hubs as well. Great. Thank you. Now, finally, could you tell me about the Music Progression Fund? So one of the challenges about music education that lots of people recognise is how there's always a real risk that those that come from privileged and advantaged backgrounds essentially end up having access to high quality music education and those that don't, don't. One of the things that really came out of the consultation government did in the run-up to this plan was asking what were the barriers they found to musical ed- education and it was quite stark seeing the cost was one of the biggest ones and I think we, we all know that if we're not careful then music education can become the 
preserve of a privileged few, we should be wanting to make sure we're opening up music education to as many people as possible. So the Music Progression Fund is essentially designed to support disadvantaged pupils. Um, so pupils with a lot of potential or enthusiasm, um, but support disadvantaged pupils based in most of the level up areas. So there's, again, there's a whole load of education investment areas, about 50, I think there are. Um, and the idea is that you sort of, it'll be a pilot, basically focused on pupils in these areas, in the levelling up areas that have been announced uh, recently, and are basically focused on partnership between hubs and schools. And there's lots more detail, I think, yet to come on it. But again, there's a whole load of organisations and funds that have already done things like this. If you look at the fantastic work of like the London Music Fund, that has really kind of taken young people who otherwise would not have access to a musical education, who've gone on to go and do fantastic things, who are now off to go and be professional musicians, and actually taking these fantastic initiatives and trying to spread them across the country and make sure that, again, at the moment, there are some fantastic organisations and fantastic charities um, that take people from disadvantaged backgrounds and give them a musical education. And it shouldn't be that you get access to those based on just where you live. It shouldn't just be you have to be lucky enough to have a charity doing that sort of thing. My interest in music came because a charity took me to a concert and it blew my mind. It made me want to go and do music at university. I was incredibly lucky that I was in a catchment area for a charity that did that for me. And if I'd have been born 60 miles north or 60 miles south or 60 miles west, I wouldn't have had that. I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast today. So at heart of this whole plan actually has been, what are the sort of interventions, what are the sorts of initiatives we can identify that are having a fantastic impact on people in specific areas? And how can we try and share that across the country and make sure that as many young people as possible kind of access those really life-changing and often transformative musical experiences? Yeah, and we were all really pleased to hear when 25 million was also put to the plan in order to support new instruments coming through into stock, not just to replace uh, existing stock that is not fit for purpose, but also to think really carefully about how we can make sure instruments are much more inclusive to all children, young people. That additional line there, I think, is so important. Catherine, Jamie, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, busy schedules to tell me about the National Plan. I know that you've been probably thinking about little else, talking about little else for the last few weeks. So I really, really appreciate the time. Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Patrick. And don't forget that we know that this is going to be a lot of additional thinking that schools need to do about the music departments and the MTA are here to support with that. So if you go on the website, there is a homepage all about the power of music, about the national plan, where there is a summary for schools. It's a one pager. So it's the kind of thing you could easily print off and hand to your line manager or SLT or send to the governors to have a look at. And, and also we've produced this self-evaluation tool, which we've benchmarked against some other national frameworks with, and the content of the plan, which might help for the school development plan to identify where your strengths and where you might want to develop brilliant great advice thanks so much thank you to jamie and jocko goodwin and to Catherine barker and i'd urge you to look up the two mta webinars on the national plan that took place on the 5th and 6th of july and that's it for this National Plan focused edition of Teaching Notes, the podcast of the Music Teachers Association. If you're not already a member of the MTA, then please do visit musicteachers.org to find out more about the good work that the MTA does and how you can benefit and, of course, get involved. It's not at all expensive to be a member of the MTA, around £1.30 per week or 20 pence per day. And you get so much, including, of course, being part of the largest and longest established association of music teachers in the UK. 
If you'd like to take part in a future episode, please do get in touch with me. The email address is podcast at musicteachers.org or you can send me a message on Facebook or via Twitter. I am at Mr. Patrick Johns. But for now, until next time, which will be the final episode of the academic year, goodbye. Goodbye.